0: The Decline of Union Democrats, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. The United Auto Workers is gaining concessions and unions are generating public support with strikes this year. But Democrats have been losing voting share among union members, and private industrial unions are still in decline, threatening democratic support in the critical Midwest. What dynamics gave rise to unions' democratic support, and is a resurgence possible? This week, I talked to Lainey Newman and Theta Scotchpole of Harvard University about their new Columbia book, Rust Belt Union Blues. They investigate the political evolution of unions in western Pennsylvania, a former heartland of democratic union support. They find that union ties used to be an important part of working class identities, social networks, and community life, guiding people towards democratic support as part of a social consensus. But today, union members are more likely to socialize in gun clubs and less likely to retain democratic ties, and they see Democrats as socially distant and focused on cultural liberalism and college graduates. I talked to Laney and Theta together, interjecting some personal stories and drawing on their own experiences. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So, Theta, what are the main findings and takeaways from Rust Belt Union Blues? Well, the puzzle is posed
1: right at the beginning of the book when we quote from one of Laney's interviews with a, a retired uh, steelworker worker in western Pennsylvania that every people used to take it for granted that you voted for Democrats. And of course, we know uh, as social scientists and observers in American <laughs> politics, that's not true now uh, for blue collar workers throughout much of the United States, including in the Rust Belt. Uh, And of which Western Pennsylvania was once the core, um, the heartland of powerful industrial unions in the mid-20th century in the United States, uh, whose members uh, were loyal not only to their union, but often uh, to the Democratic Party as well. So our argument is that the strength of that attachment between unionized blue-collar workers, particularly in Western Pennsylvania and the steel industry, but we think it it's a more general uh, hypothesis, at least, is more than a matter of the sheer numbers of members in the Steelworkers Union, the number of dues, the amount of dues they were collecting, of, of personnel that they could hire in their regional and national offices. Uh, it wasn't just a matter of what the union leaders, the international leaders, endorsed or told uh, their members to do. It had more to do with the way in which the union itself. And in many places, Democrats were woven into the web of local community life because they were part of family life and um, recreational and community life beyond the workplace itself. So when those industries went into big decline, even in the places where unionized workers are still there? Some plants are still there. Um, those that web of connections that grounded the identity of a union man and uh, quote unquote they mostly were men and grounded the uh, commitment to vote for Democrats against Republicans that has withered too, particularly in industries and unions that were rooted in local communities, medium-sized cities. So we developed that argument with a lot of wonderful interviews that Laney did, as well as various analyses we've done of newsletters and and, uh, observations and pulling together what other scholars have written about unions. We also make comparisons between two specific unions that are organized differently and have different kinds of relationships to local networks, the um, Brotherhood of Electrical Workers versus the Steelworkers. So our argument is an argument about political commitment and identity grounded in social relationships.
0: So, Lainey, situate us a little bit in western Pennsylvania, where most of the book uh, takes place, and I know it's based in part on your uh, personal experience uh, in the Pittsburgh area. So so how does that uh, relate and give us some of the, the backstory behind this book?
2: Yeah, sure. So I grew up um, born in uh, Pittsburgh, um, have lived in Pittsburgh my whole life until I moved to Cambridge for college, um, and I guess my interest in sort of understanding the Evolution of Western Pennsylvania um, as it relates to electoral outcomes started probably when I was in high school and um, working a little bit, uh, volunteering um, just for the Democratic Party um, and, and and doing some door to door knocking that type of thing. Um, I think my my interest in unions goes back to my family, which. Um, I had some extended family members, uncles who um, were Latvian immigrants, uh, and who were uh, very um, staunch union men up in Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Um, they were members of the United Auto Workers, uh, and were very loyal. Sort of um, this, this I really bought into this identity and um, and loyalty to 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 the auto workers and and to the union and to the Democratic Party. Um, and so that sort of was something that I drew upon, I guess, in, in, in trying to sort of frame this identity question. Um, but the political aspect then came in, you know, with, with the changes that we've seen in Western Pennsylvania, um, and how over time, um, some of those counties outside of Pittsburgh that used to, you know, be up for, you know, uh, were competitive between Democrats and Republicans, um, today really... Uh, are not at all. And, you know, our, you know, Republicans sort of win in margins greater than 30 and 40 percentage points. Um, So trying to understand why such a sort of union dense area or once union dense area uh, is now, um, has now changed, but particularly within the union community um, and where that identity of the union man, um, union community, union family went over those decades.
0: So, Theta, this is in some sense a, a new book about unions in Western uh, Pennsylvania, but in another sense, it's a, a continuation of your your decade-long interest in kind of the decline of American uh, civic uh, life. Um, how different, you know, are the the role of unions and versus the role of the the funny hat groups uh, and the other kinds of civic associations that. Uh, used to play uh, these democratic roles in life and and where did you see kind of similarities and differences with what the groups you've studied before?
1: So part of the answer here is that the people who were in unions, even the most left-leaning unions in the middle of the 20th century were also members of the various uh, cross-class fraternal and ethnic associations that uh, were rooted in those same communities. And they went back and forth Holding events at different at each other's headquarters or drawing on each other's occasions, uh, social occasions and loyalties. Um, now that meant, though, that um, you know a particular union a steel worker who belonged to, say, the Polish club, and the and the and the or the Hungarian, there's a beautiful Hungarian badge, the Hungarian Benefit Society and, and Fraternal Group and, and the steelworkers at the same time, would be associating with slightly different groups of people in those two settings, but not all that much. And the union uh, outlook on the world, the defining of unions as the the tool by which employers were forced to give higher wages and better working conditions to a generation of men who actually knew the difference because they had themselves experienced or they knew people who had experienced the pre-union past, that union reality almost certainly influenced the ethnic uh, fraternal groups, uh, black and white, all different uh, European ethnicities. Uh, drew in a lot of military veterans. Uh, These were all patriotic orders. They often, and unions were too. And one of the things we found uh, in the course of doing this work were not just badges, but for example, I remember finding a a ritual for an early um, local union of of the steel workers in the CIO. And of course, it's much more secular than the kind of rituals that um, pre-union fraternal groups performed, but it has exactly the same structure. The meetings were opened the same way. Officers were elected. People were inducted. There wasn't a vow of secrecy, but um, I guess it's by way of saying that unions grew out of and themselves contributed to this um, longer tradition of cross-class voluntary groups that had local meetings tied to higher district or state and national centers. So uh, that's part of the answer. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a different um, way of organizing brotherhood and sisterhood. Uh, And it definitely builds stronger bridges across ethnic identities and even racial identities than a lot of the longstanding civic associations did. But in many ways, the way of organizing, meeting locally to build power and identity to have an impact at higher levels is very similar.
0: Lainey, you focus on this idea of the union man, uh, and you do discuss uh, the long history of the integration of, of unions, um, but it does seem that the identity was, was specific to, to white men, or at least predominantly uh, white men at the, at the height uh, of, of its impact. Um, you know, can we have this kind of working class identity tied to unions uh, be as strong in a more diverse workforce?
2: I think absolutely. Um yeah, so just to go back to sort of the initial um your initial thought about uh you know what the what the Union man identity really encompasses. Um we talk about a, a couple different things that uh we believe rooted the Union man um identity uh in 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 community and in um loyalty to to the Union. Um and those were sort of a mutual sense of commitment to other members. Um, occupational pride in one's work um, and skill set that that one has Um, and then historical awareness as Theda was alluding to earlier Um, this you know knowledge of either first-person knowledge or you know hearing from from elders I guess uh, about sort of years past and and, um, working conditions that you know were, were, were vastly improved by the labor movement um, and so I, I, think that, I think that those things, um, you know, being, uh, connected with one another in, um, in unions and then connected with the community as a whole, uh, um, via the cross, uh, institutional array of different civic organizations in a lot of these towns wasn't necessarily specific to, um, a certain race or ethnicity. In fact. I talked to a lot of retirees who were, who discussed how they were at times members of multiple different ethnic clubs. They would be, you know, they'd hold a card to um, the Lithuanian club and also the Polish club because everyone would get together on, you know, on different days and um, in different places. Um, And so I think that, I think that uh, as time went on, the, the, um, it it did become more of a sort of diverse identity, including um, you know being when women were were integrated into a lot of these unions, um, and I, I think that I think that it can apply to today's current workforce. In fact, um, I heard uh, an interesting interview of a um, member of the United Auto Workers, a woman who who basically was pulling on all of these similar strands um, of, you know, identity and loyalty and, you know, sort of occupational pride, you know, her her, her father had worked in the same plan. And, and this was in the context of the current strikes that are going on. Um, and I found it really fascinating, because I think that it is exactly the same sort of um, components of, of what really re- what created that union man identity. Um, and, and I think that the only thing that sort of makes it, you know, in our heads is the picture of, a, a, you know, the white man from the 1950s is, is because that's what it was at that time. Um, but, you know, moving forward, I think that the identity itself uh, isn't necessarily tied to a specific race or, or gender.
1: You know, we should also say that um, we were well aware as we were working on this book that the fashion right now is to talk about race as a sort of global, all-determining factor. Um, so, um, we paid careful attention to what we could learn for the period in the mid-20th century and then on through the end of the 20th century to the present about, um, something that has been studied statistically. Union membership does tend to create bridges across black and white, uh, whites and Hispanics, uh, as well as the gender divides that Lenny was talking about, more than other kinds of involvements, precisely because of this kind of horizontal loyalty, that is, um, and the sense that we're in this together. And if we don't hang together, we we will hang together. So I mean, I, I think that um, what appeared in our interviews. And one of the striking interviews that's in the book, and Laney will correct me if I've got this wrong, is, is with a West Virginia person who was referring to somebody in the in the mine workers union who said that, uh, yeah, you know, they were prepared to uh, work closely with uh, with African Americans and, and, and listen to the messages about economic bargaining and politics. But if they weren't a member of the union, they'd probably be in the KKK. Well, that's exactly what's happened in West Virginia. I can tell you since my sister lives there, uh, you know, it's not the KKK, but uh, without a strong union presence, uh, without the, the mine workers being a major presence in communities and in national and state politics, um, people fall back on uh, racial stereotypes that surely were even stronger in people's individual attitudes and minds back in the 1950s than they are now. Uh, So if a lot of social scientists study race as if it was a matter of attitudes in the heads of disaggregated people, actually most people have a mixture of attitudes that can be activated and stereotypes that they believe in that can be activated and ideals that they think about that can be activated in very different ways, depending on who they're interacting with and what they're doing with other people. And I think that's a methodological point that we, we experienced very concretely in the work we're doing right down to the interviews. And it's why, um, we think that a predominantly white industry and a predominantly white male ranks of, of unionized steel workers—they're fewer now, but they're still there—they're um, not switching to Republicans and voting for Donald Trump because they're more racist now. It's because something's missing in their uh, social networks, not because uh, stuff in their heads has necessarily gotten more toxic. So that's that's both a methodological point, which actually we're pretty serious about, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's a it's a point about race that race isn't some unchanging. You know, lump. It's a set of potentialities uh, that can be activated or not in different circumstances.
0: But part of what you're challenging uh, is uh, more of a. I guess, global understanding within political science uh, that uh, racial and cultural issues have become uh, both more salient and more divisive uh, between the, the left and the right, uh, while uh, class issues have either become less so or at least relatively less so. Um, and, you know, as you know, the income divides are, are declining in lots of the, the uh, democratic world and education divides are increasing in lots of the educated world. Uh, and the relative salience of culture war issues is, is increasing. So even if people are not getting more racist, um, it could be that uh, racial and other cultural attitudes are dividing us more uh, than economic attitudes or more than they used to. Um, you know, to what extent can you uh, have a kind of a local story to something that the the world is experiencing?
1: Uh, well, um you know, you pointed to the educational divide, which is an educational credential divide, isn't it? It's a divide about those who spend time in college and those who do not. And if you've got a bigger mixture of people who've been to college, that's a local setting they've been in. where uh, ident- in, uh, I would just observe that over the last 20 years, colleges have become hotbeds of identity talk. Twenty-four-seven. Uh, there are reasons for that, and of course, it's connected to larger social changes. And I, I don't in any way want to suggest it's it, 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 have a, a pejorative take on it. I mean, I people like me weren't here uh, forty years ago. So I mean, that that um, there are reasons for these things that are in the real world. But by local, we don't necessarily mean. Um, physically local, it happened that in the steel workers, the physical local and the density of networks of interactions inside and outside of work, particularly outside of work, um, coincided. They didn't coincide as much for the electrical workers and they don't coincide in the same way for college credentialed people. But you still have to look at who people are interacting with, what they take for granted, who they think they are, which politicians and leaders they think are on their side and which politicians and leaders they think are on the other side, what television networks they watch is part of it too. Uh, and that tends to be pretty socially embedded. Um, I don't know a lot of people watching Fox news, but when I go out into the world to talk to my tea party people, or if you talk to blue collar people, you're going to hear that, that that's what they're, they're watching. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I hope I'm answering this question. I don't think this is a an either or, but I do think that um, just looking at attitude data without understanding the context in which the answers, the questions are framed and the answers are given, is a sufficient methodology for understanding, for example, the role of race in politics.
2: I would I would just add on to that um, that I think that the sort of the the salience of racial and cultural issues manifest and sort of play out on the local level, right? So I think that though you know the trends are uh, that and the dynamics are are global, quote unquote, because I guess these you know these are narratives that we're seeing um, in the media and uh, you know in polling data and and what have you. anyway, I think that the the way that people experience those changes and and those those narratives being played out is very is very local. Um, and the messages that people are listening to, um, the political signals that people are receiving and adhering to um, is a product of those local interactions and those individual interactions, um, even though they're playing out on like the backdrop of these broader trends.
0: So part of the story is is about um, social connections of these people to the Democratic Party that have been lost. Um, but part of the story has to be about what the image of the Democratic Party is, is today and uh, having seeing those people as as not me, um, you to discuss uh, the the transition in Pittsburgh uh, to the focus of the, the De- local democratic leadership on Eds and meds as being the economic potential uh, for uh, the the city. Uh, you also uh, cite Kathy Kramer's work uh, in Wisconsin, uh, where she finds that it's not just that they don't see a, a connection to the Democratic Party. They see the Democratic Party as tied to the University of Wisconsin faculty out there maybe uh, working to help the people in the big city, uh, but uh, not, not them. So how, how much is that part of the story, uh, that the Democratic Party is changing and it's where it's growing? That people don't necessarily see themselves uh, in these formerly union households?
2: Yeah, so I mean I think that the the the, the Democratic Party's changing priorities is a huge part of the story. Um, and we talk about that um, in, in our discussion of the evolution of these regions. Um, I think that a lot of people do feel that the Democratic Party left them behind and has prioritized um, the coasts and, and urban centers. And I think you know one of the sort of most empirical um, manifestations of that was was when you know where Hillary Clinton went during her twenty (laughs) sixteen campaign, um, and not going to certain places uh, and really trying to um, only you know trying to essentially her strategy being um, these you know voters in these places don't matter as long as we can run up the numbers high enough in the cities. Um, and we learned that or, you know, the Democratic Party learned that 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 is not an effective strategy. Um, and so I think that there has been some uh, some, you know, coming to terms with with that reality over the last couple years. And I think that the 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 posture that Biden has taken on has been um, ha, has has sort of uh, sort of, um, I guess, clawed back at at those underlying uh assumptions that, that a lot of democratic party leaders were making for a long time. Um, But I think that, you know, during, during the era of, of the steel decline, a lot of people felt like there were political choices and um, elite based choices that were being made to purposefully or essentially, um, you know, the action that was being taken um, was inevitably going to hurt these these communities and these individuals and in, in this and in this industry, um, and you know that that can kind of be contrasted with, um, you know, so Carter, for example, did not intervene he, uh, to to sort of save the steel industry. Obama did intervene um, to, uh, to bail out the auto industry um, in uh, the mid two thousands and so or late two thousands. So. I think I think that, you know, these these differences in inaction and action matter. It also matters where where the where the Democratic Party is showing up and maintaining ties and and building sort of on it on itself. It's not sufficient to just come around every election cycle and and expect people to, to, you know, come out and vote for you.
1: Our twist on the Kathy Kramer story is that we were looking, especially in that area in Western Pennsylvania, at the, the sense of resentment, or at least m- some mixture of resentment and, and appreciation that people around Pittsburgh experienced as they watched the city of Pittsburgh make the transition to the Eds and Meds um, and, you know, set up a museum or something or nostalgic things about the Steel City where while, while their communities were were being bypassed. I mean, I actually think in Kathy Kramer's work it isn't all as rural as she says. I think she's talking about rural as not not big cities, but we are specifically looking at that divide between medium city areas uh, that used to flourish. Uh, along with the bigger cities and the uh, bigger cities. And, you know, that's where the divide between the parties is now. Mm-hmm. It's, at the, it's at the edge between the suburbs with educated credential, college credentialed people in them, not a whole lot of unionists, and then the exurbs. And in the past, some of those exurbs or at least those near in uh, suburbs would have been blue-collar, uh, blue-collar strongholds of the Democrats. The Democrats are literally not even there. Or, or at least they weren't. I mean, I do think the one thing Biden learned from the Hillary Clinton Trump election is that you better go there and you better lose by less if you want to carry a state like Pennsylvania. Biden carried Pennsylvania in twenty twenty, whereas Hillary lost it in twenty sixteen because he lost less decisively in the non uh, Philadelphia collar area and uh, and and the. Uh, areas in western Pennsylvania, he actually eked out a win in Erie, and note that he goes to Erie. That's part of the mystery of why Donald Trump could appeal to people who feel so left behind. They can't have a beer with him. Are you kidding? And I'm not even sure very many of them think he's going to carry through on his promises, but they think he goes to where he is. His his, his rallies are always cited in these kind of medium city areas. Uh, and he's always saying, I understand your resentments. Um, so when I did research after the Trump election in 2016, I would go to places like that and they would say Hillary Clinton never came here. The Democrats weren't here. They sent some young man from Brooklyn, they said. They said that to me in different parts of the country. They sent some young man from Brooklyn at the last minute who told us to do the wrong things. That's what they said. Well, I think the Democrats are beginning to learn that lesson. And in some key states and some parts of states, they're beginning to be there a little more. And that is what we would conclude they have to do. They're not going to revive their ties to the industrial unions in the same way but they do need to be in these places
0: all the time so Laney you have a comparison between uh, an industrial union uh, and a building trades union the electrical workers um, and you also say a little bit about the uh, about the changes in uh, labor in the United States but the the big one that that I somewhat left out is the tr- uh, transition to public sector unions, where um, a much greater proportion of union members are now in the public sector than than they used to be. So, so what did you learn from your comparison, and kind of how much of this applies to the modern union workforce, which is a lot different?
2: Yeah, I think that yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, in our comparison between the steelworkers and electrical workers, uh, we we sort of distilled um, different components of the structure of the unions um, and how they communicate with their members, um, how they're able to create uh, um, member-to-member ties in different ways. Um, and there are some key differences between the steelworkers and, and, and the electrical workers that I think are fairly can, can, be, can be fairly extrapolated to industrial unions um, versus the craft unions or the, the uh, skilled trade unions. So, um, steel steelworkers are very sort of place-based, um, in that they, uh, each local union is centered usually around one, um, plant factory mill facility, industrial facility, um, and uh, sort of everyone in, at that individual place, um, would be part of the same local union. Um, whereas the electrical workers, uh, the electrical workers, um, each local union is a hiring hall, so people are sort of going to the to the, the local union for the next project that they're assigned on. Um, but they are not place based, um, you know, sort of ties because they're the the projects are changing. They could be it could be that a couple months you're on you know one thing in one, in one county, and then then you're on another project in um, you know a, a different a different area entirely. Um, so there's a lot more sort of. Fluidity in movement, um, and what we saw is that the electrical workers actually were quite effective at keeping in touch with their members, at circulating information, um, and sort of maintaining um, a sense of community uh, via these these communications to their to their members. Um, and the steelworkers sort of um, deprioritized the community and social aspects of uh, of communication. Um, during, during this sort of decline of, of uh, union power from the 50s to today. Um, and so steelworkers mainly now prioritize business affairs, um, you know, union affairs uh, and, and political um, uh, sort of uh, topics whereas it seems as though we have, you know, we have suggestive evidence that the electrical workers prioritize more sort of community building um, than than the steel workers. Um, I think that in terms of the public sector unions and the service workers, um, it's important, I think, to just, and this is something that Theda and I definitely care about in this research, to understand like the, how different these these unions are, both by industry um, and by individual union. Um, and that you know it's really hard to aggregate uh, at a large scale, you know, trends about union membership um, because of just how different, uh, you know, the um, the outcome or the outcomes and and effects are um, based on uh, based on which union you're talking about or what industry you're talking about. Um, so public sector unions, I think that that one important thing is that you know generally the the average member is going to be um already more inclined to vote democratic. Um, so the average member would um be a woman and be relatively highly educated. Um, and being part of a public sector union or being in the public sector itself is a predictor is correlated with um, more tend- more likelihood to vote democratic. Um, so the I don't think the effect that we see, and I mean similar things could be said about service workers, Um, especially because there's more um, people of color and and women of color in those industries. Um, But I think that the effects that we see in terms of the political um, potence of the union would be somewhat diminished um, in both the public sector unions and in the service workers unions. But I think that the identity factors um, and the loyalty and sort of the, the um, lessons that, that our research uh, talks about um, and, about sort of how, how to build a constituency and a community um, around the, the union um, do translate to, to, other, to other types of unions as well. Another that comparison really... that you make
0: is with uh, the gun clubs, uh, and many of which uh, require National Rifle Association uh, membership. Um, and that kind of gives a chance to, to try to tease out um, what is the role of an issue position, somebody's for gun rights versus an identity uh, of being a gun owner versus the actual kind of on the ground social interactions of being at a, at a gun club. Uh, how, do, how do you see those things working together and uh, comparing to, to the unions?
1: I think this is a wonderful area for further research which we could only begin to kind of sketch the possibilities. Um, if you go back to the 1950s, 60s, 70s, all the way up to the present, you're going to find uh, guys in western Pennsylvania going hunting. In fact, uh, <laughs> that we found in our newsletter analysis, which, by the way, is a wonderful kind of way to track change over time if you can get a run of a publication Matthew, yeah. We we really learned from his work. And of course, he did a great deal with those NRA magazines over years, it was a lot harder to find runs of newsletters for the unions, either the internationals or local. But we did to a considerable degree. And if you go back and you look at them, they often had sections on hunting, and they certainly had articles, and they certainly had instructions about how to get a hunting license, all of those things. And even now, you see the remaining unions in places like Western Pennsylvania have gun clubs themselves in an effort to keep people from um, gravitating to the NRA-connected, more regional gun clubs. So um, we're not saying that people don't care about guns. Uh, You know, I think they care about them, they use them, Uh, they socialize around gun activities, uh, probably uh, hunting being one of them. Uh, There's a lot of good research that shows that Shooting ranges and gun clubs have become more important sources of socialization among those people, socializing among such people. And that's the point. We were asking the question, as union halls disappear, as union meetings are harder to convene at all or aren't convened, as they don't link up to a web of other groups in a local community among the steel workers, where were people going and they were going to gun clubs and to mega churches often driving long distances just like um remaining union workers do to their to the remaining plants so uh, that means that taking a look at what um kinds of political elites and national organizations with political messages are connecting up to the gun clubs is important and um I think it's been a deliberate strategy on the part of the NRA and other gun uh, gun advocacy organizations to uh, sink roots in a lot of these local facilities, uh, which are places that people go for for drinking, for weddings, for social events to meet political candidates just like they used to do those things in union halls or in ethnic halls connected to union halls. So um, we're once again, kind of suggesting that not that people stop asking about attitudes. Do you believe in the Second Amendment? Do you whatever that's fine. But kind of find out where people are, are hearing about the latest on that issue and what where their interactions are and what what kind of informal messages might be carried in those settings. There is a fair amount of good research out there on megachurches that shows that they have lots and lots of internal groups. They often have men's groups and family groups and women's groups and Wednesday prayer sessions. So there are many, many places where people can get the message to be a good citizen, you got to vote, and to vote, you got to vote for a Republican. The same kind of messages that they would have gotten through unions in the past on the other
0: side. Laney, one of the analyses that you did um, seemed to show that maybe they're they're getting through a little bit uh, more than than the union side. You went to the parking lots of these uh, f- uh, facilities uh, and saw what kinds of stickers people had on on their cars. So, what did you find there? And and did you find that? Uh, from a more democratic organizer perspective, uh, a bit depressing about the the likelihood that this is going to turn around.
2: Yeah, so I mean, uh, so the the bumper sticker analysis sort of just grew out of um, uh, me driving around Western Pennsylvania um, to these different areas. uh, A lot of them along the Monongahela River going south down to West Virginia. Um, And this was during the pandemic. And so I was thinking about ways that you could sort of like just you know are there you know yard signs or these types of things that signal a particular political affiliation and i drove by um an employee parking lot and i was like i'm um, that's it i'll go in and check out the the bumper bumper stickers um and so uh, yeah i mean i think that it is it is definitely disheartening um it would be disheartening for democratic organizers to to know that um, to see that, you know, a lot of these union members have such conservative leanings. Um, I think the highest rate, the highest number of bumper stickers that I recorded were, um, were gun related. So, um, a lot of people, uh, uh, talking about gun rights and, or, you know, some, some of these stickers with, you know, sort of snarky, uh, you know, gun pro gun, uh, catchphrases or whatever. Um, uh like gun control is means hitting your target, that that type of thing. Um and but, you know, I mean, I think that I think that um I mean it wasn't surprising to the to to people I talked to, to my older interviewees. Um when I brought it up with them, uh, you know, that the you know I was looking around and I saw that there, you know, all these cars have these conservative leaning bumper stickers. Um, some of my older retirees that I talked to about this were were not surprised in the least, um, they knew that that change had taken place. So I think what's important about it is not only that people are, um, you know, have, that people have those beliefs and, and are putting them, you know, out, putting them on their cars to, sh- to, to the, in that they have the beliefs, but also that they aren't af- ashamed or, you know, that there isn't a, um, that the, it would, that it isn't a culture, I guess, in the community, um, uh, where, you know someone would get kind of like, uh, you know, pushback for that. Um, and I think that in years past, there was more of a sense of, Oh, well, if you, if, if some person is defecting, um, and is going to do something that would be, um, some sort of, uh, indicate some sort of disloyalty to the union, there would be pushback from fellow union members. Um, but that is not the case anymore. Um, and so I, I, I'm not sure, um, I mean, I think that all of these things go to, you know, how how we could make move or move the sort of the um, in the direction of getting some of those union members back. But I'm not sure exactly uh, where that would start right now.
1: Well, you know, just methodologically, remember, Lenny, this happened during COVID when you could drive around and you came and told me about it. I got extremely excited Uh, and, and I sent her back. I told her, go back and count. Go, go, go back and count. Uh, and then we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how we could get a sense of what it was like in the 1950s and 60s and I don't know. We we, we we couldn't see the parking lots. I don't think that we could have found pictures. But you took it to your retirees and asked them to talk about what it was like. Uh, so it's just one strand of evidence. It doesn't pass the Gary King test at all. But it 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 it. it we tried to be more systematic about it, and I think what people proclaim publicly does matter. Uh, I remember the Democrats in nineteen in twenty sixteen saying, "Oh, yard signs don't matter." Well, um. Yes, they do, Um, especially in these more sparsely populated areas. If you see a lot of yard signs in one direction and not in the other, you get the idea everybody's doing it. And everybody's doing it is. uh, That's why everybody in Cambridge, Massachusetts is a Democrat. Let's face it. I mean, it's not as if we're outside of this. There's a big social component (laughs) to political choices.
0: So we're we're speaking at a, a time when uh, the UAW is very visibly uh, winning some uh, contract uh, gains, uh, and uh, the public support uh, for unions and for the union side in specific conflicts is uh, very high. Um, Biden uh, recently visited the the picket lines of the UAW. Trump tried to hastily do something uh, in in Detroit to align himself as well. So, uh, what what is the the opening here, um, if there is one? Um, I I happen to be on a flight that was uh, delayed twice for uh, in Detroit for once for uh, uh, Air Force One to come in and. Same flight delayed for Air Force One to go out. So it may not have been your kind of long-term commitment that you all are asking for, but uh, it was very visible uh, uh, attempt to, to show an affiliation. So is is there a sort of hope for this uh, connection between the Democratic Party and the unions, or is there a broader opening uh, with, with unions being more popular at the moment?
1: I'll say something, and then I'm sure Lainey has things to say, too. I mean, I um, had to give a lecture on this in the course that we're both teaching in, American Society and Public Policy, and, you know, it's striking. The attitude shift toward unions is quite marked, but... um, Pro-union sentiment has grown more among college-educated people than it has among uh, blue-collar or without college degrees. Uh, so this is not some kind of revival of what once was. Does it matter that general public opinion is more favorable toward unions and unionization? It does. And we know that in the last year, there have been um, more union organizing efforts. There have been more strikes. Uh However, uh, it's not likely that this whole thing is going to result in a revival of mass blue-collar industrial unionism because a lot of the union uh, victories now are occurring in uh, uh, higher-educated occupations, public sector, nonprofits, smaller workplaces in the service sector, even smaller workplaces in the private sector like Starbucks. So um, all of this is happening, and yet the, the share of private sector unions, but workers that are in unions, is continuing to tick down each year. It did even in the last year. Um, it's more that... Um, the voice of unions that still exist and that are gaining some strength, and there are some that are gaining, will be more respected and more heard in general public debates. And I think it is telling that um, Biden went to the went to the to Michigan. Now, the UAW is one of the more vibrant remaining blue collar unions, and it has been for a long time. And. Uh, It also is the union that benefited from the fact that Obama didn't just let the auto industry go under the way in which Democrats before him let the steel industry go under. So this is definitely of significance in close-fought elections in key states across the Rust Belt. No question about it. But uh, whether there's going to be a a huge... uh, increase in the share of unionized workforce i don't think so particularly because we have to remember that so much of uh industry is shifting to the south and these are still right to work states that are hostile to unions
0: laney one of the things that it seems like your work could help explain is that we all often find these these context effects in addition to individual level effects so everything that's you know predicts that you uh, on an individual level, vote Democratic or Republican, um, also sometimes has an effect at the geographic level. So education's having an individual effect is also having a bigger effect if you live in educated or less educated areas. Same thing with union effects, that they're not just whether you're a member, but whether you're in an area with high union density. Um, and it does seem like Social relationships uh, and um, kind of cultures might be uh, a piece of that. So I I guess give us a sense of whether you think that, uh, you know, that this affected people beyond just the directly connected um, and and whether the change has also done that. And if so, is that kind of a sign that these are going to continue to move in the same direction, that we're unlikely to have a reversal if... It's the, the pattern that, that Theta mentioned, that it's, it's well, it's what people around you are doing, it's how they're changing that are uh, also going to reinforce uh, your change.
2: Yeah, I think that during, during the height of big labor, there was an immense impact, um, not only within the unions themselves, but uh, in broader communities um, that, that the unions did have uh, on those communities. Um, and so I, I guess I'll start by saying, I think that the family was something that unions prioritized a great deal, uh, and women were paid attention to in the sense, you know, wives were paid attention to in the sense that, um, they were involved in various activities of the unions. Um, they oftentimes had women's auxiliaries, um, and, you know, would, would Come in and provide supportive services, I guess, to to their to their spouses. Um, a lot of the sort of socialization um, was made possible by the women involved. Um, you know, men would go to uh, to socialize with one another, and, and women would take care of the children in these traditional nuclear families. Um, and there was also attention paid to children. Um, and we see that in, in some of the newsletter data where a lot of the meetings were happening at high schools, um, where the unions were sponsoring uh, soapbox derbies, uh, that type of thing, um, and were involved in the community in a really significant sense. Um, in this survey that we found from 1955 um, in the archives at, at, at Penn State, uh, one of the things that was almost universally um accepted and, and sort of encouraged by members, by rank and file uh, steelworker members, um, was involvement of, the un- of local, their local unions in their communities. Um, so v- people were very much in favor of um, the unions, you know, being involved in charitable, tra- charitable uh, activities on the local level or being involved with other community institutions. Um, and I mean, we see that with all of the relationships that, that um, unions had in, in this era, uh, to other institutions um, using facilities, uh, sh- sharing facilities, you know, ex- exchanging, you know, co-sponsoring events. Um, ha- clergy members writing pro-labor uh, articles in in various newsletters or, or labor newspapers, um, that type of thing. So I think that the union influence uh, during during this during the height of of union power had had a huge huge impact beyond just the union member. Um, himself or her or later on herself. Um, And so I guess in terms of uh, whether that plays out today, um, I think it's similar. I think similarly, um, you know, the the union impact is sort of a ripple effect and not only affects um, communities, local communities but also other in other industries or other sort of companies within the same industry and that it generally brings up wages um for those people and that there are sort of subsequent you know effects down the line um but i don't know if all of those are necessarily realized and understood by by you know people um so I'm, i'm not sure if if I'm not sure how how these how the community impact would play out today um, in terms of the changes that we're seeing in in um, union demographics.
1: Well, here's a hypothesis: a lot of the industries, both blue collar and college deg- degreed industries that have, including public sector, that have gained or at least held their own in the current period, and like I say, nonprofits. Uh, including university people, are unionizing. I mean, we have graduate students in the UAW uh, at Harvard. uh, And we'll we'll say something about that in a minute. But uh, the fact that there are more uh, females in unionizing workplaces and occupations almost certainly means, and I think there's some evidence for this, we do not cite it in the book, but it's a great area to study, that uh, there are more people paying attention to these kind of uh, beyond-the-workplace-and-family-connected interactions that created a strong steelworkers union in a very different setting in the past. So that may be part of the reason that you see uh, the shift toward pro-union sentiment among college-degreed people. And then more of them may have some familiarity with unions as a kind of brand or somebody that they know is in them or they've been to an event that the union is involved in. Um it's also book learning, of course, and, and the increasing sensitivity to inequality among people who are themselves benefiting from inequality, but uh, could care about it anyway. Um, so I, I, do, I do think that these spillover effects are almost certainly there. And I guess the message would be look for them. Don't just ignore them when you do research, and we found that you really cannot rely on a survey that just says, are you a union member or not a union member? What kind of union are you a member of? who are the people in it? What's the industry? What are the organizational features of that um, union? And how do they intersect with civic life and politics? Those kinds of questions are hard to study. You can't sit in front of a computer and do find all the answers. But I, I do think that there's plenty to look into there, um, including the whole question, which I'll queue up for, for Laney, what happens when the declining blue-collar industrial unions decide they're going to unionize librarians and graduate students? Uh, uh, does that add to their strength or subtract from it, or does it do a little of both?
2: Well, I think that um, I think it does a little bit of both. But I think that in terms of the original industry and the original members of uh, of those industries, there is a sense of um, you know, distance that's put between them and the union as a result of the sort of diversification of industries represented. So as I mentioned, I'm, I am a member of the United Auto Workers because I'm a grad student and I'm, uh, uh, a teaching fellow. So I'm employed by the university and um, they negotiated a great contract with the university. Um, But I I do think that, you know, the, the, something that I heard from some of my, some of the steelworker interviewees is that, you know, now anyone can be a steelworker. It doesn't have an an steelworker with a capital S, right? So a steelworker being, you know, a United Steelworker, a member of the United Steelworkers um, and anyone can be it. So what does it really mean? Um, and do do does the union actually pay attention to the needs of the specific um, industrial, you know, original industry members, or is it sort of just this broad-based, um, you know, special interest group essentially? Um, so I think that there is there is a sense of um, a little bit of uh, you know loss, I guess, in that sense for original, uh, you know, for the for the original industry members of the of those unions.
0: The UAW is also the organizer of grad students at Berkeley. So I was a member as well. Uh, the uh, So one of the other things this reminded me of, uh, Theda, was uh, the analysis of uh, black partisanship in steadfast Democrats, where they um, point out that uh, very conservative African-Americans are more likely to to vote Democratic if they're in social institutions like black churches and barbershops and elsewhere where uh, they uh, are surrounded by other African Americans. Even when they're being interviewed by an African American, they're more likely to say they're going to vote Democratic. And they imply that you know this is about there's a consensus in the group and there's a social sanction uh, if you don't abide by that consensus. And part of the union effects of the past might be might be something like that um, and if so, seems like it's hard to bring that back um, <laughs> you know once once there's no consensus uh, and uh, there's there's no social sanction um, you know can can they hope uh, to, to, to move people who maybe you know have uh, political views that are more conservative uh, to, to bring them back into the democratic fold
1: Well that's why. Um, it's not a question of going back to what was there before. It's a question of, uh, inserting yourself, being present in what is, is happening now. And, um, you know, let's, let's take the Georgia Democratic Party, which I've written a paper about in another setting. Um, it took them quite a few election cycles and it took them a conscious decision Uh, Both the party itself, but groups around the party to be an ongoing year round presence in the medium city areas of Georgia, not just around Atlanta Um, to improve the margins enough so that you could have a victory for Joe Biden. Now, Joe Biden is not an exciting African-American charismatic figure. Uh, So uh, there's an awful lot of consultants who tell you you can't win without one. Nonsense. They won by building a a year-round presence of groups of peers. I remember running across the evidence that in the area around Albany, Georgia, fairly conservative area of south, I think, western Georgia, um, they were organizing through the funeral directors' networks. Find out what networks there are and be in touch with them, not telling them what to do, not arriving a month before the election, but being there to share messages. Uh, Stacey Abrams was very much behind this when she discovered that a lot of people in in Georgia, in black communities in Georgia, did not understand that the Affordable Care Act uh, had to be implemented partly through the state. They thought President Obama was denying them access to Medicaid. Um, so, you know, I think there's an assumption in college educated democratic circles and the, the various consultants that hang around in Washington, D.C., that everybody knows the issues and it's just a question of pressing a button with an issue and an identity, and there you are. Actually, politics is complex, it's opaque, uh, it, it has to do with hearing messages from people you trust around you and hearing them about 500 times year-round so the the, the the answer for Democrats is in even for progressives and liberals is not to go try to re, recreate the past it's to find out w- where the interactions are now and be part of them
0: so Laney part of uh, that uh, interaction uh, might be just occurring uh, online and in uh, digital realms now I know that you were attracted to to Theta's uh, uh, series of, of uh, badges and history of civic organizing. But I imagine some students in your generation think, well, that's just old hat. And uh, now we're on to, to civic organizing. And there is um, in Michigan, you know, plenty of my students uh, or uh, folks that I know, um, you know, posting pro UAW stuff on their uh, social media feeds as well. So it's not um, completely out of the realm of possibility. That um, we're in kind of a new, um, yeah, a new, new age of of social interaction. On the other hand, it does seem like you know it's a little easier to do that um, than to establish real in-person social relationships. So, wh- how would you sort of see see it um, as kind of the current state of civic engagement? And is it possible that this new kinds of not new, but <laughs> more online interactions uh, will replace the old?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I think people still feel a need, I think, for, for a sense of community and a sense of belonging. Um, and the way that that manifests today is different, of course, than it was um, 70 years ago. Um, but the fundamental, you know, sort of human need for, um, for social connection and um, for community is, is still there. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think that there are ways that social media and um, new types of organizing can be used really um, well and and for positively for for unions. But I also think that there's always going to be a role for in-person um, engagement, and I think nothing proves that better than the pandemic that we just had. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone being completely isolated, not of their, you know, and on their computers, not of their own choosing, but because they, you know, had to, everyone had to. Um, and I think that, you know, coming back into post-pandemic world, I think a lot of people are, you know, sort of a little bit, um, more appreciative or or cognizant of the impact of you know in-person um engagement with other people. And so I think that I mean even what we see with the NRA and these local gun clubs um, having these social elements um, that used to be social elements of union, union halls and that used to be social elements of fraternal groups. Um, and, and even some of these more extremist organizations uh, like the Proud Boys, Um, was originally described by its founder, uh, Gavin McKinnon, by as, um, you know, a a drinking club like the Elks, right? Like, I mean, so, so I think that the, the need, the need and, and the desire is always going to be there. Um, And I think it's a matter of, you know, strategizing when, when we should use the, the internet and virtual reality, you know, virtual sort of connection um, as opposed to in-person connection. But I, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of getting people together in real life.
1: <laughs> you know, um, the t- history of American civic life shows that um, what passes in any given era for virtual connection and what passes and what is, in fact, face to face always intersect in shaping organizations, associations, and collective impact in civic and political life. Uh, Everybody forgets, but the U.S. became a nation of organizers, not through purely local stuff. And our argument is not about purely local. It's about the rooting of the translocal in the face-to-face and the local In the past, the post office played a huge role in connecting what passed for virtual contact and was virtual. People were interacting and communicating and delivering political messages. And learning about content in non-face-to-face ways, in ways that reinforce the building of the face-to-face components of the associations they were in. So I think there's a lot of research to be done now, but there's a lot of research that's beginning to show it's the way in which face-to-face and virtual interact and the ways in which they reinforce one another or undercut one another, it's not that everything happens virtually. There's some very good research on that in different kinds of movement contexts. And if it's just a bunch of tweets,
0: well, Twitter isn't even there anymore. It's not going to last. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available biweekly from the Niskanen Center, and I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, I think you should check out these episodes next labor union influence on inequality and legacy costs, what explains the diploma divide, how rich white residents and interest groups rule local politics, how to build institutions, not political hobbies, and why are black conservatives still Democrats? Thanks to Laney Newman and Theda Scotchpole for joining me. Please check out Rust Belt Union Blues and then listen in next time.